invite you to turn in your Bible with me to the book of John, John chapter 18. Uh, we are going to begin a series of sermons uh, just when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. You know we do that every, uh, the second Sunday of every month. And, uh, and so for the next several months as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're going to be uh, just looking very closely at all the events that led up to the uh, crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so looking forward to uh, this series with you. And we're going to begin uh, on the night when Jesus was betrayed, John chapter 18. And um, we'll read the first 14 verses of John chapter 18. Let's give our attention to God's Word. When Jesus had spoken these words, that would be the high priestly prayer of chapter 17, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have not lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officer's of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Let's ask the Lord's blessing. Oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for this word inspired by your Holy Spirit, and we thank you that that same Spirit uh, is now present to teach us these things. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would just help us to see you and your beauty, your glory, your love, as you step forward to the cross to die for our sin. And we pray, Lord, that uh, seeing we would worship. And we give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, as uh, if you've been paying attention to the headlines, you know that... Um, there's a great war raging today in Ukraine, and um, there's stories of victories and defeats. Uh, today we uh, mark the 21st anniversary of the beginning of a, a war, the, the war against terror as it was called, as uh, 20, 21 years ago today the, the towers uh, of New York were destroyed. Well, the story of the cross is a story of war. Uh, this is a battleground scene that we have in front of us in John chapter 18. Uh, and the question that we'd like to begin with is, who are the participants in this war? 
at, at first glance, it, it might seem that the participants are Ju Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. They uh, certainly saw it that way. Uh, they are intentionally out to get Jesus. They're out to destroy Jesus, to kill him. Uh, they see Jesus as a dangerous threat to their power. They see Jesus as a threat to the, the Jewish nation. Uh, and so they're determined to uh, do whatever it takes um, to put him away. At another level, level, you could say that this is a battle between Jesus and the devil. We know that the Bible says the devil is a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, and the devil never desired to devour anyone as much as he desired to devour Jesus. Uh, the devil, if you know your, your Bible history a little bit, your Bible story, uh, you know that the devil tried to destroy Jesus when uh, he incited Herod to kill all the babies in Bethlehem that were two years old and, and younger. Uh, seeking to destroy the Christ. You know that um, the devil had tried to destroy Jesus when he led him in, when Jesus was in the wilderness and the devil tempted him there for 40 days. Uh, you know that the, the, the devil tried to destroy Jesus when Jesus' own hometown tried to push him off a cliff in Nazareth because they were so outraged by what he had to say. And so um, the devil was... Out, certainly out to destroy Jesus. And the story of the cross could be read that way, and maybe you've heard it spoken of that way. This is a contest, and, and it looks like the devil is winning as he puts Jesus to death. But the fact is that this is, in the final analysis, not primarily a war between Jesus and the devil. It's a, it's a battle between God and, and sin. Uh, God is the one who is waging this war. And in this, in this battle, in this war, uh, Jesus is the mighty weapon in the hands of God by which he will destroy the, the powers of hell, the powers of darkness, and deliver his people by atoning for their guilt. Jesus is going to resolve the, the problem of sin, the problem that first reared its head in the Garden of Eden back there in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Jesus has come to address that great issue, that power. And so Jesus, in this story, as, we'll, as we move through, we'll see it over and over, Jesus is in control of these events. This is not a story of a, a helpless victim who's suffering uh, the devil's schemes. It's a story of a willing sacrifice. It's a story of one who loved his heavenly Father so much he was willing to submit to his Father even to the cross. It's, it's a story of one who loved his, his people, the children that God had given him and and loving them was willing to lay down his life for them. And so uh, that's the story that we'll be looking at as we, as we study this great drama of redemption beginning now tonight in the night that he was betrayed. Uh, we, to really understand the, the richness of these events, uh, we need to try to see them with some biblical context. So we're told the immediate context here, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus had, has um, celebrated the Last Supper with his disciples. Uh, Jesus has uh, uh, prayed the high priestly prayer, John 17. And then, verse 1 of 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the book, brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now, this is a, uh, this is the, the scene here is a scene that is saturated with biblical history, all of which points to Jesus and helps us understand what's happening here. The Kidron Valley itself is a valley with history. 
If you remember uh, the story of David and uh, Absalom, David, remember, uh, was the king of Israel, and Absalom, his son, uh, was trying to dethrone him, and Absalom was seeking to kill David, his father. And so we read that uh, David, in first, uh, 2 Samuel 15, we read about David crossing this very same brook and going up this very same Mount of Olives. The similarities in the stories are, are striking. Then as now, uh, Israel was rejecting her true king, wasn't she? Uh, Absalom was not God's anointed, David was. And yet Israel had turned against David, uh, the hearts of the people had gone over to Absalom, and so Israel, then as now, had rejected their true king. The differences are even more striking. David, as you remember, was running for his life. Jesus, as we're told here, is walking resolutely towards his death. David was fleeing from the wrath of his own son. Jesus is walking towards the wrath of his father, the holy and just wrath of his father. David was suffering the result of his own sin. Jesus was bearing the weight and the guilt of our sin. And so the, the, the differences highlight the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're told there was a garden, John says, the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is entering a garden. Again, if you, um, if, if you remember your, your, uh, your Bible, uh, you remember that there was an original garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Adam, the first Adam, and Eve uh, were placed there to obey God, right? That was their calling. That was like, that was the job, obey me and live. And, uh, and they failed. They disobeyed God. And, and so they were, as you know, they were expelled from the garden. And, and there were two angels with flaming swords placed at the entrance to the Garden of Eden. And uh, the angels were there to keep Adam and Eve from coming back into the garden. And the reason it was God was in the garden. And God is a holy God, and His holiness is a consuming fire of all that is sinful and evil. And so the angels are placed there to keep Adam and Eve out, lest they go in and die. And so the story of history is a story of man living east of the garden, east of Eden. But now we have a second Adam. Jesus, the righteous Son of God, He's going to take our sin, and He's going to move into that garden of divine judgment. He's going to go and experience the justice of a holy God. He's going to go in and allow His body to be broken and to shed His blood and to, to bear the wrath of God, do our sin, so that the angels can be removed, so that you and I are allowed to enter into the garden of the presence of God, so that you and I can be reconciled to God and be invited into an eternal paradise with God. That's what Jesus is here to do as He enters this garden. And Jesus has not, uh, he's not looking to hide in this garden, is he? Remember when, when Adam and Eve sinned, uh, they were stricken in their conscience, and when God appears, they hid. Well, Jesus is not here hiding. He came here to be found. Look at verse 2 of our text. Now Judas, who portrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus is not hiding. He's going to a place that Judas would know well. Judas does not have to look hard to find Jesus. He knows where he's going to be. 
The betrayal is so easy, it almost seems like it was ordained that way, and of course, in the counsel of God, it was. And so in verse 3, then, we read about the betrayal itself. Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. The portrayal of Judas is an important part of Jesus' suffering. It's an important part of the story. Uh, Paul defines this night when he speaks of it as, as the night in which he was betrayed. You see, the... the um, the trauma here is, or the drama here, is that Judas is one of the twelve. Judas is not just another uh, Jewish man who doesn't like Jesus. He's not one of the scribes and Pharisees. He's not part of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council. Judas is one of the twelve, one of the twelve disciples. And why are there twelve disciples? Why not eight, ten, thirteen? Why twelve? And the answer, of course, is that Jesus, by choosing 12, is, is uh, teaching that he's come to inaugurate a new kingdom. Remember um, that Jacob had 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And Jesus has come to, uh, to inaugurate, in a sense, a new Israel, a new people of God, a new kingdom of God. And these 12 disciples represent that. And now one of the 12 has betrayed Jesus. One of the twelve has said, I've seen Jesus up close and personal. I've watched him. I've listened to him. And let me tell you, he's a fraud. He's not who he says he is. Judas, being one of the twelve, speaks with authority. And so when he betrays Jesus, it's a mocking of Jesus. And he comes with a band of soldiers, probably about maybe a hundred men. The, the garrison, Roman garrison, is close by. There'd be likely 400 soldiers there. And he comes along with some uh, Pharisees and some temple guards, and they come with their lanterns and their weapons. The, um, the irony of this gang is only matched by their folly. If you think about what they're doing, uh, they come with swords and spears to arrest the one who has created galaxies by simply speaking. This is Jesus creator of heaven and earth, the one who said, let there be light, and there was light, who made everything simply by saying it, let there be. And they come to him with sticks, little, little, little swords, right, and, and, uh, and their spears against the king of the universe in order to overwhelm him. Uh, they come with their little 10-watt lanterns, right? Their torches and their little lights, and they're going to come and arrest the light of the world, the one who created light. Uh, the, the irony is, is it's quite vivid. Jesus nailed it when he says of those who put him to death, they know not what they do. They have no idea what they're doing, no concept of what this is about. But Jesus does know. Jesus knows exactly what this is about, and John says that in verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward. Why does John mention that? Why does John want us to know that, that this is, Jesus knows what's happening, and knowing everything that is going to happen, Jesus comes forward? Well, because John is astonished by it. 
Who in their right mind, knowing all that is going to happen, not just the arrest, not just the beating, not just the flogging or the mocking, not even the crucifixion, but suffering the, the wrath of a holy God for sin, who in their right mind steps forward? Jesus does. Jesus knows all that's going to happen. He knows he's going to drink the cup of the Father's wrath. He knows he's going to experience um, devastation unimaginable to the human mind. And so to step forward, you see, to come forward is for Jesus to embrace all of that, to embrace all that was necessary to accomplish the Father's will, to embrace everything that was required to gain your salvation. You see, John writes it down because he's astonished by it. He's astonished by the love that Jesus, knowing all that was about to happen, steps forward. And we should be astonished as well. Whom do you seek, Jesus says? Who are you looking for? He knows who they're looking for. But he wants them to acknowledge it. He wants them to say the name, Jesus of Nazareth, the name on the warrant. He wants them to, um, to in a sense, condemn themselves in this, right? No one could claim ignorance. No one could say there's just a crowd of guys going and I didn't know what was happening and, and, and uh, there, there I was. No one could say there's a mix-up. Name the name, Jesus of Nazareth, they said. And so Jesus said to them, verse 5, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. This is an amazing thing. Here's all these big, burly guys. And, and Jesus says, who are you looking for? And, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, yeah, I'm, I am he. They all fall over. What's, what's going on? Well, it might, um, it might help to know that uh, in the Greek, I am he, three words, is a single word. I am. I am. You see, that's the name of divinity. Remember when Moses was at the burning bush? Boys and girls, remember that story? Moses was, uh, was out in the back 40 uh, in the wilderness with the sheep, and there was a bush that was burning, but it was not being consumed. Boys and girls, remember that story? And, and then God said, Moses, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. And God called Moses to lead Israel out of the bondage of Egypt. And Moses said to God, well, they're going to ask me who sent me. I mean, with what authority? What authority do I have? What shall I tell them when they say who sent you? And God said, tell them I am sent you. Tell them I am sent you. That's the name of God. I am. So glorious name. And now as Jesus is about to lead his people out of the bondage of sin and death and hell, Jesus takes that name and claims that authority. God, you see, is not sending someone to deliver his people. God himself, in Jesus Christ, is going to rescue us. And at the name of God, I am, they draw back and fall to the ground. God is in his holy temple. You see, let all the earth keep silence before him. This is a day of judgment the judgment is going to fall on Jesus, but it's a day of divine and holy judgment. 
And the reaction of these men is a foretaste, a foretelling of the reaction of all the enemies of God on the final day of judgment. Malachi 3.2, who can endure the day of His coming and who can stand when He appears? You see, Jesus, in the moment of His judgment, the, the glory of God, the reality of God is so overwhelming and overpowering that, that those who've come to arrest Him cannot possibly stand, and they collapse. St. Augustine says, seeing, seeing that He did this when He came to be judged, what will He do when He comes to judge? You see, this scene just tells us so clearly that Jesus is in charge of the events, and, and he takes charge, and he, and he asks the same question again, because these men are, are clearly befuddled and confused. They're picking themselves off the ground, um, and, and Jesus reminds them why, what they're there for. And who, whom do you seek? Now, in the, in, if they were thinking clearly, they, they should have said, we're not seeking anyone, we're going home. Right? I don't know what's going on here. I just know that um, we're fine and we're leaving. But they're not in their right mind. They're in blindness and bondage to sin and being directed by the divine hand. And so they don't stop and they, they say it again. Uh, stupidly, they plunge on. Jesus of Nazareth. We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I told you, I am He. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Just notice the deep, deep love of Jesus. He, he, he asked the question again, so they say it again, and Jesus says, all right, so we've, we've established. You're looking for me. You're not looking for my disciples. You're looking for me. And so here I am, let these men go. And he orders it. And of course, they obey. If the stars and the planets must obey King Jesus when he speaks, how much more these men? And, and John specifically tells us that he, John wants us to see that Jesus does this because he's fulfilling what he, what he had just prayed to the Father. He had just said to the Father, uh, Father, of all that you've given me, I've not lost one, recognizing that, that the Father had not given him Judas. Judas had belonged to the twelve, but Judas had never belonged to Jesus. And Jesus says, Father, of all that you've given me, I've not lost any. And Jesus, knowing that these, his disciples were not ready to stand, they couldn't, their faith would not be able to stand, um, he shields them from harm. You see, he's already laying down his life for his sheep. He, he's already accepting death so that they might live. It's a beautiful moment. But then there's Peter. Instead of accepting Jesus' protection, right, Peter decides to be the hero. He's going to be the protector. Verse 10, and then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Uh, the servant's name was Malchus. Uh, you see, Peter had seen enough. Uh, his whole world is coming apart before his eyes. Jesus is allowing himself to be captured, and uh, someone must save Jesus, and that someone, of course, is going to be Peter. And so as, as the soldiers move forward, uh, Simon Peter, the fisherman, draws out a sword, maybe something he's never swung before in his life, and aiming for somebody's head, manages to uh, clip an ear, uh, his skill clearly falling short of his zeal. We should appreciate his zeal. 
on one level, right? Peter loves Jesus. And Peter is convinced that this is the Christ. And he's not going to go down without a fight. He's going to do whatever he can against overwhelming odds. There's something commendable about his zeal. The problem is it's not according to knowledge. It's according to Peter's desire and Peter's insight and Peter's will. It's not according to Jesus' knowledge. It's not according to Jesus' desire. It's not according to the Father's will. These men don't know what's happening, but Peter doesn't either. Jesus has right, just prayed, Father, thy will be done. And so he rebukes Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus has just wrestled through this with the Father. In John 17, you uh, you can read about it. Jesus has just wrestled with, um, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He had had prayed that with blood, sweating drops of blood in in agony as he he faced the prospect of suffering the wrath of God. And, and, And yet he... Time and again came back to, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, your will be done. Your will be done. You see, obedience to the Father had been his meat, his food, and drink his whole life. It's what he lived on. My meat is to do the will of him who sent me. That's what he said. And obedience would be his sustenance now in death. This was his Father's will. And Jesus says, shall I not drink the cup? This bitter, bitter cup that the Father has given to me. It's just a stunning thought that the Father hands his son, his own beloved son, his precious son, this cup to have Jesus drink to his death. But it was the Father's will. And nothing is going to keep Jesus from obeying his Father's will. So, Jesus having committed himself to this path. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. And first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. And it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas again said that, not having any idea what he was talking about. He, he was talking about, let's kill Jesus so that the Romans don't come and kill us. All right, let's just sacrifice this one for the good of the rest of us. But Jesus is doing a vastly greater work than Caiaphas ever imagined. One man dying for sinners. And so the men come and they arrest Jesus and they bind him. And there we also have echoes of Old Testament history, and, and we, we see the, the glory of what Jesus is doing. Remember, there's, a, there's other uh, stories in the Old Testament about binding. Isaac, if you remember, in Genesis chapter 22, Isaac, the precious and beloved son of Abraham, the promised son, Isaac was bound by a rope because the God, the Father, commanded Abraham to do that. And Abraham bound his son and placed his son on an altar of sacrifice and was about to strike the knife to kill him when when God said, stop. And a ram was there in a thicket, and, and God provided a substitute so that Isaac could be set free. But now Jesus is the son, and Jesus is bound And there will be no substitute for Jesus. He is the ram. He's the lamb that will die in the place of sinful men. And he will accomplish salvation for all those who belong to him and all those who believe in him. There's another story of binding in the Old Testament that also highlights what's happening here. If you remember the story of Samson 
one of the leaders, one of the judges of Israel, a sinful man, a flawed, and, a flawed man in so many ways. And we're told the story that he was bound with a rope and brought into the temple of the Philistines, much like Jesus is bound and brought to Caiaphas, the high priest. And Samson proceeded to destroy more of God's enemies in his death than he ever had in his life. And that's precisely what will happen here. Jesus is about to pull the house down on death and hell. And they don't even know it's happening. It's an incredible story. Such an amazing scene. These men have no idea of what is taking place. But Jesus knows precisely. Jesus knows. The whole history of the world has come down to this. The Father's entire plan of redemption has come down to this. The eternal destiny of all the Father's elect has come down to this. And Jesus, knowing all this, submits to the Father's will. Jesus, knowing all this, embraces the cross. Jesus, knowing all this, moves towards his death for our salvation. Here is love vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood. When the prince of life our ransom shed for us his precious blood. John clearly marvels at the love of Jesus. Let's marvel as well and worship as we come to the table of our Lord this morning. Let's bow in prayer. Lord Jesus, we are awed at your love for us on that bitter night, you stepped forward to be the lamb that takes away our sin, the sacrifice that atones for our guilt and reconciles us to God. And Jesus, we thank you. We worship you. And now, Lord, as we come to the table, we receive by faith that sacrifice for our sin, the sins that we have committed and the, the sins that we are guilty of by omission. We come now, Lord, as sinners to the table of Christ, thanking you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you that you've opened a way. Thank you that we can be forgiven and set free. And may we experience that freedom and forgiveness as we now eat and drink in faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.